Please take your Bible. Turn with me to John chapter 16. Many of you are familiar with, uh, with John Bunyan's classic work, The Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, just by way of hand, how many of you have read it? Okay. Um, the Pilgrim's Progress tells the story of a man named Christian who leaves his hometown, the city of destruction, to make his way to the celestial city, the city of God. And along the way, he encounters many people of many types in many places of many kinds. It is a brilliant, brilliant allegory, and each person and every single place is significant and ripe with meaning, and sheds profound light on the Christian life. At one point, Christian is traveling with another believer named Faithful. And together they come to the town of Vanity, uh, whose people are interested only in worldly things, buying and selling worldly wares at the year-round Vanity Fair. And the two pilgrims infuriate the town by refusing their fare, making very, very clear that, that they want only the truth. Causing quite a stir, they are arrested, jailed, and made a spectacle. And yet they conduct themselves so well under such duress that they win the sympathy of some which only causes even more uh, contention among the crowd. Uh, though they've done nothing wrong, faithful and Christian are held responsible for this second uprising as well. Indicted on the charge of disrupting trade, creating dissension, and treating with contempt the customs and laws of the town, they are tried. Faithful is sentenced to be Executed by the presiding judge. His name is Lord Hategood. He's, he's faithful. He's scourged. Brutally beaten. Stabbed repeatedly. Stoned. And burned at the stake. But Bunyan makes clear that his end on earth only signified his beginning in heaven. For unseen by any at the time, there stood behind the multitude a chariot that awaited faithful and took him straight away through the clouds to be with God forever. And I thought about faithful this week as I was reflecting on John 16. Jesus has been telling his disciples about the hatred of the world. How the world is fundamentally opposed to Christ and the things of Christ. 
how they would be ostracized, excluded, and even killed for their faith in Christ. And if this wasn't enough, he was departing from them and seemed to be leaving them to face the terrible opposition alone. Of course, they were not alone, and and neither are we, for, for Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit our helper to minister to them and even to, to them and to us and even through us to a world at need, in need. You see, because the Holy Spirit is your help, you can persevere in Christ and in your Christian witness, bringing hope even to a world of hate. And that's the essential message Jesus is putting forth here in John 15 and now in John 16. So let's read it together. I want to begin John 16, chapter 1 through 15. And then we'll consider, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. And then we'll consider verses uh, 4, beginning at verse 4. Jesus says uh, to them, I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for the morning. How good of you to bring us together yet again. And already we have sung... Uh, songs and, and hymns of praise. We have, um, we have declared your primacy over all things at all times. Uh, we have drank deeply from your fount of love. Oh, how deep and wide and high and long is the love of God. And oh, how I pray for my 
my brothers and sisters here, for everyone in this room, that each and every one would know the deep, deep love of God in a very real and personal way today. We have remembered your goodness and we have given you thanks. And so even now as we turn to your word, we thank you again and we ask that you would speak to us clearly. Impress your truth upon us. Change, your, change our lives by it. And make us to be agents of change. Ambassadors for Christ. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to testify to great things God has done. Would you do this, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. I think I want to take this section in three parts. First, the disciples' sorrow. And then the Lord's supply. And finally, the Spirit's sustaining grace. Verses 4 through 6 put forth the disciples' sorrow. Jesus says in the latter half of verse 4, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. For three years he'd been with them, preparing them along the way, though they hadn't grasped the full weight of what he'd been saying. They couldn't. Unlike the Lord who knows the end from the beginning, and even unlike us who live on this side of the cross and see from a far better vantage point, they were simply piecing things together in real time as the events were unfolding before them. And now that his death had drawn nigh, Jesus offered timely words for these timely moments. Had you just one day left to live, what would you say to those closest to you? Had you just a few hours remaining, what words would you leave behind? Death has a way of reorienting our priorities, minimizing the trivial while making the most of what time remains. These are among the last words Jesus would share with them before the cross. And as I've said before, last words are lasting words. He knew what they were thinking and feeling. And that's the beauty of close relationship. Those closest to us are easier to read. We learn their body language and, and facial expressions. We, we know their eyes that do indeed provide a window into their soul. And without them having to say a word, we know exactly what's on their mind and, and what's consuming their heart. You see, the disciples hadn't said anything since chapter 14, verse 22. Who knows how long that was in terms of time. But Jesus obviously knew their exact questions and concerns. 
No doubt they wanted to know why these things had to be and when they would occur and where they would take place. But they didn't have to say a thing because Jesus was well aware that what he was saying to them had filled their hearts with sorrow. Just this week, I said something to my five-year-old son that immediately filled his heart with sorrow. I could tell by the quiver of his lips and the look in his face, and I could hear it in his voice. I had touched a very tender nerve, and he needed some reassurance that it was all okay, and it was going to be okay. But unlike my son, who moved on relatively quickly, the disciples were just overcome with grief. Not only was Jesus leaving them, they were also facing the prospect of a hostile world, and they needed to know that it was all okay, and that it was going to be okay. And so Jesus, knowing this, speaks again of the Holy Spirit, the Helper, and and of our great advantage in the Spirit. I tell you the truth, he said in verse 7, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the, the the, the Holy Spirit, the Helper, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, how nonsensical, right? How nonsensical this must have appeared to them at first. To them, I'm sure it seemed like this was when they needed Jesus most. Facing a world of opposition, wouldn't it seem like they need Jesus now more than ever? And yet amazingly, surprisingly, Jesus said to them and now to us that it was to their great advantage that he he leave. For by returning to heaven, he would send the Spirit to earth. And so the disciples' sorrow is met with the Lord's supply. His supply of the Spirit. You see, in the unfolding of redemptive history, the Bible gives prominence to each of the three persons of the Godhead. Prior to the time of Christ, we see the prominence of the Father. During the time of Christ, we see the prominence of the Son. And following Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, we see the prominence of of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Father rescues His people and leads them to the promised land, a foreshadowing of salvation, full salvation that was yet to come. In the New Testament, the Savior Himself appears in human flesh and form. Though He is God, He gives His life unto death for a world that needs God. And when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit, we see the Spirit of God drawing sinners to the Savior that they would live in sin no more. We live in the age of the Spirit, which is to our great advantage. Certainly, the Holy Spirit has always been with the Father 
and the Son, and he was certainly active prior to Christ's coming and throughout Christ's earthly ministry. But at Pentecost, that great day when the Spirit came in full power, the age of the Spirit began. By the Spirit, the church was born, and we live in this age today, and we will until Christ comes again. You see, while on earth, Jesus could be with them at just one place, at one time. He could be with people individually on individual occasions, but he could not be with them all at all times. Through the presence of the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the person of the Holy Spirit, however, he would not only be with them, he would not only be with them, he would be in them. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He'd be with each of them at all times, in all places. The Holy Spirit would, would minister Christ to them and even through them to the world at large. This was their great advantage. And it is ours as well. Ours is a privileged time indeed. The Spirit has come with sustaining grace. He is the helper. And in verses 8 through 15, Jesus speaks of his ministry in the world. Here we learn how the Spirit convicts, guides, and exalts Christ. The Spirit convicts the world. When he comes, verse 8, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. To convict in this way means uh, to expose, to bring to light, to reprove. It's a legal term. It means to pronounce a guilty verdict. We need to know that conviction is good for us, spiritually speaking. An act of God's love and mercy. Conviction is advantageous to us in that we are given the opportunity to see our guilt and repent before the final sentence is levied. According to Jesus, the Spirit convicts the world in three ways. Concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, verse 9, because they do not believe in Christ. You see, the root of all sin, the root of all sin is unbelief. And at the root of unbelief is this latent denial of Jesus. Peel away, peel away the layers of of lust or anger or greed, and you will find traces of unbelief as people choose their way over the way of Christ, either indifferent toward Jesus or just outright refusing Jesus. And so the Spirit comes also to convict the world concerning righteousness. 
Now, a person is typically not convinced of their own sin until they are measured against a specific standard. Our problem, however, as fallen people, is that we tend to measure ourselves against other fallen people, assuming that as long as we're not as bad as some, it'll all work out in the end. And so what the Spirit does is He instead brings the righteousness of Christ to bear because Jesus alone is the perfect standard by which we are all judged by God. Now, we don't like to think about judgment. I don't like to think about judgment. But we are judged all the time in almost every walk of life Think through this with me. When submitting an assignment at school, you are being judged by a higher authority and graded accordingly. When under review at work, you are being judged by a higher authority and compensated accordingly, hopefully. Even when applying for a loan at the bank, your credit report and financial outlook is being judged by a higher authority, and you will either be approved or denied. So we are judged all the time in almost all walks of life. And the basis of judgment is how we measure up to a set standard. So when our righteousness, when my righteousness, when your righteousness is compared to Christ, to Christ's, the judgment becomes clear. The verdict is self-evident. We are found guilty. Rightly so. This is just on God's part. Because by nature all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we're told that the wages of sin is death. Sin brought death into the world both physically and spiritually which is a far greater consequence. And in sin, we are separated from God. And the Bible says in sin, we are destined for hell. And if the devil himself, or, or the ruler of this world, as Jesus says in verse 11, if the devil himself is guilty, what will become of the worldly who follow in his path? So in kindness and love and incredible patience, people, the Spirit of God reveals these things to us, allowing us to, allowing those who live in unbelief to see their sinfulness in light of the sinless perfection of Christ, informing them of just judgment, so that we would be convinced of our utter helpless, utter, utter, utter helplessness apart from Christ, and therefore turn to Christ while there's still time.
Jesus innocently bore our sins, died in our place, so that by God's grace, through your faith, you are saved from sin and death to eternal life with God. You are made right with God to stand before God in the righteousness of Christ. Now, my assumption is that 95% or more of you already know this and you know it very, very well. And so my question to you is, who are you sharing it with? Who are you sharing this news with? Who in your life needs to hear what God has done? come back to this in a bit the spirit of God an incredible love kindness patience is revealing these things to us allowing us to see ourselves as we really are convicting us of sin so that we would run to Christ our savior the Spirit of God convicts, and He also guides. Jesus says in verses 12 and 13, I still have many things to say to you, but you just can't bear them now. That's just, just as an aside. How tender and understanding is that statement right there? that Jesus does not want to overload them. What a great, what a great encouragement for us as we work with people, help people, share our lives with people, disciple people, just to be aware that people have limits and we want to be sensitive to the spirit to not overload them too quickly I still have many things to say to you he says but you just can't bear them now When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will tell you what I want to tell you now, but you're not able to hear it now, so He's going to tell you at just the right time, just when you need it. One of the Spirit's ministries is to reveal Christ or, as Jesus says, to take what is mine and declare it to you. I had such a, a wonderful visit with Ron Hagen this week. And we were just talking and, oh my goodness, it's just a wealth of wisdom. And we were just talking about life and 
the stuff of life. And, and he asked me about school and what I was learning in school. And I just so appreciate his encouragement. And he said uh, something like, what could you possibly learn that you don't know already? <laughs> Ron, that just meant the world to me that you would be so encouraging. And yet we all know that we all have so much more to learn. And so we began talking about how there are degrees of learning. Whether your thing is computers, or maybe your thing is construction, uh, maybe your thing is cooking, whatever it is, there is always more to learn, and you don't learn it all at once. Like building blocks, we learn incrementally, building on one concept before progressing to the next. That's life. And that's the Christian life. Aren't you thankful that Jesus does not expect you to know it all, all at once? Think about that. Aren't you thankful that Jesus understands your limitations and finiteness. Aren't you thankful that there is still more of Jesus to learn and know? We do not know everything at the moment of our conversion. At that moment, you are born again by God's Spirit, and like a newborn baby, you begin to grow spiritually from infancy to adulthood, maturing along the way. And this growth, sometimes called sanctification, is incremental and progressive as the indwelling Holy Spirit reveals more of Christ to you. It's a beautiful display of a back and forth relationship with God as the Spirit of God tends to you personally and guides you into all truth, transforming you from the inside out to reflect the cause and character of Jesus Christ. Think about where you were spiritually six months ago or a year ago or five years ago. Think about where you were spiritually when you came to Christ or, where you, or, or even before you came to Christ. Think about where you were. And then think about where you are today. Has not the Spirit of God sustained you? Is not the Spirit of God sanctifying you? Graciously transforming you into greater Christ-likeness. So the Spirit reveals Christ, guides us in Christ, and exalts Christ. What is it? Verses uh, 14 and 15 speak to this. All that is the Father's belongs to Jesus, and all that belongs to Jesus belongs to the Spirit also. He does not act independent of the Father or the Son. Instead, coming from the Father, He lifts high the Son and places before us the splendor of Jesus Christ, 
convicting us of sin while convincing us of our need. He guides us to Christ. Look, look at Him. Look at Jesus. He guides us to Christ and then He leads us in Christ and He's always making much of Christ. The Spirit of God delights in the Son of God, even as the Son delights in the Spirit by declaring that the Spirit is to our advantage. Together with the Father, they exalt one another. So the Holy Spirit convicts, and the Holy Spirit guides, and the Holy Spirit exalts Christ. This is His work. Now, how should we respond? So I have three suggestions. One for each of these three aspects of the Spirit's gracious ministry. Number one, regarding conviction, invite the Spirit's grace while inviting others to the same. Invite the Spirit's grace while inviting others to the same. When the Apostle Peter preached in the power of the Holy Spirit on that great day of Pentecost, you remember what happened to those who heard the message? They were cut to the heart. How kind of the Spirit that they were cut to the heart convicted by the Holy Spirit, they then asked, what should we do? To which Peter said, repent. Place your trust in Jesus Christ. Turn from sin for the forgiveness of sin. And those who did, about 3,000 people that day, were forever reconciled to God by the Spirit of God. You see, how a person responds to his or her sin speaks volumes about the condition of their soul. Let me say it more personally. How you respond to, the, to your sin speaks volumes about the condition of your soul. I want you to think of a time. You probably won't have to think too far when you came under the gracious conviction of the Spirit of God. Maybe you were doing something Harmful to yourself, to your own soul. Maybe you were doing something harmful to another. Maybe you weren't doing something you should. Maybe you were being tempted by sin. Whatever it was in those moments, God was being gracious to you by convicting you. So rather than shun the Spirit in those moments, invite His grace into your life. 
Invite, yes, Lord. Yes, you're right. Thank you, Lord. I needed to hear that. Yes, thank you. Invite the Spirit's grace into your life. And invite others to the same grace. I want you to just quickly look with me again at verses 7 and 8. Jesus said the Holy Spirit comes to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world. (laughs) You catch that? Jesus said the Holy Spirit comes to you. To you, to you, to you, to me, to you, to you. And when He comes, He will convict the world. He comes to you to convict the world. In other words, the Spirit's ministry to the unbelieving world occurs mainly through those who believe. He convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment through those who have already been convicted and graciously convinced. The application then is to engage, this is what I was saying earlier, to engage with the people in your life who remain unconvinced because of their persistent unbelief. How will they be brought under the Spirit's conviction if not by the Holy Spirit in you? How will they come to learn of the transforming work of the Spirit if not by seeing His transforming work in you? How will, they, how will the world hear of its need for Christ if we are not rubbing shoulders with those who need Christ. And so invite the Spirit's grace into your life and invite others to the same. Number two, regarding guidance. Uphold truth with the Spirit of truth. When Jesus says that the Spirit will guide you into all truth, we must remember that the world, got to remember the context of what he's saying here. We must remember that the world fundamentally hates truth. God's truth. The truth. The world says that truth is relative. That there are no absolutes to which we are all accountable. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. As America becomes increasingly post-Christian, we must uphold objective truth in a subjective society. And thankfully, the Holy Spirit helps us do that. But we must understand, oh my goodness, please hear this. We must understand that sometimes the Spirit guides us into hard places, like Vanity Fair, where truth is trampled upon, so that truth will ultimately prevail. Now, it may not look like victory at first, But in the end, God's truth always wins. 
I want to return to that story. Christian and faithful suffered immensely. Both were persecuted for their love of truth. Faithful was martyred while Christian pressed on. Then he was joined by another believer, a man named Hopeful, a native of the town of Vanity, who had been so struck by their witness that he became a pilgrim himself. Hopeful then tells Christian that many more are following, which indeed was the case. And by the time Christian's wife, Christiana, passed through vanity years later, truth, though once despised, was now honored by all. People, we need to steady ourselves and stay the course. We need to uphold truth. As hard as it may be with the spirit of truth. For by God's grace, even our suffering may lead to the saving of others down the line. And then third and finally, regarding Christ. Worship the Lord in spirit and truth. You know the story in John 4, the woman at the well, and Jesus says true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such people to worship Him. Simply that means that your spirit must be surrendered to the Spirit. Not until you submit to the Spirit of God or the Spirit of truth can you worship God in spirit and truth. And the way you submit to the Spirit is by believing in Jesus whom He reveals. In short, the Holy Spirit enables your worship of God by revealing the beauty of Christ. You know, sometimes we think of worship as a noun. Some thing to which we give passing attention. Sometimes we think of it as an adjective. Something that merely describes something else, like a worship service. But my encouragement to you all today is to think of worship as a verb, something you do. Not on Sundays only, for one hour only, but every day and throughout the day. You know, worship is the rhythm of revelation and response. And so ask the Spirit of God to help you see again the beauty of Jesus Christ and then savor what you see. Jesus has sent, I know this has been a lot of information, Jesus has sent the Holy Spirit to minister to you and even through you to a world in need. And because the Spirit is your help, you can persevere in Christ and in your Christian witness, bringing hope even to a hateful world. Amen. God bless bless you. We bless you. We thank you. We love you. We, We glory in you. We pray for your continued work in our lives. We want that. We want to invite your grace into our into every nook and cranny of our lives, would you, 
Would you, would you help us to be more and more receptive? Make us more holy. Make us more sensitive to your voice. Make us more aware of the promptings of your spirit. Help us to see more the beauty of Jesus Christ. Help us to be greater ambassadors for Christ in our walks of life. We pray for the people in our lives, those who remain in unbelief, even now as their names and their faces pass through our mind. We just pray for them, God, and we ask that you would be gracious to them as well, that you would bring necessary conviction and convince them of their need. And would you be pleased to to minister to us and through us to them for their good, for their good, for their eternal good, and for your eternal glory. Amen.